Welcome to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope you find this podcast to be a resource that helps you grow in your faith through the study of scripture and theology. Now, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And let's give our attention once again to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Paul writes, beginning in Ephesians 4, verse 7, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Most gracious Father, as we look now at your word and hear this announcement of what we are called to be in Christ, what we have been gifted to be by the Spirit of Christ, I ask that you would strengthen me even now by your Spirit that I might speak in such a way that we are all strengthened as our eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're we're clearly in verse 7, jumping into the middle of a thought that Paul has already begun, that we've looked at for the last two weeks, dealing with the reality of the unity of the body of Christ. All the ones that we read last week, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. One, 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 one. Verse 7 starts, but grace was given to each one of you according to the measure of Christ's gift. So while there is one body, each of us have, been, have received grace according to the measure of Christ's gifts. This is what Paul talks about when he talks about spiritual gifts and, and gifts of the Spirit. So within this one unified body, there is still diversity. But... It's not a a diversity of body. It's not a diversity of the faith. It's not a diversity of Savior. It's not a diversity of God. It's not a diversity of doctrine. Rather, the diversity that is found in the body of Christ is a diversity of gifts that Christ has given so that the body might be complete. That's the diversity that we find in the body of Christ. And it's needed. The diversity in the body of Christ, we're going to find out in in the following verses, is needed. And it's needed specifically in order to maintain and increase and grow the unity of the body. 
Remember last week, we, we wrestled with this question briefly about how can Paul say with a straight face that there's one body when we look around and we see anything but that reflected in the church today? Well, remember what, what I said is, is that he's declaring what actually is the case in Christ, much like he proclaims that the Corinthians are holy. This is what is working and happening in us as we are being grown by the grace of Christ, by the grace of the Spirit into this one body. And how does that happen? This is what the verses that we're looking at today lay out for us. It happens because Christ has given gifts by which we are united ultimately in one faith and one knowledge of the Son of God. But to get there... He points out first in verses 8 through 10 who it is that gives us these gifts. And this is very, very important. Because we've got to understand that it's not just anyone that is given gifts, but it's someone that has the authority and the power to equip his church with what it needs in order to grow up into one body. Paul quotes kind of Psalm 68. It's actually not a quote. If you, if you read verse 8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And then you go back to Psalm 68, 18 that, that people say he's quoting here. You realize very quickly, okay, Paul has changed some words. Paul's changed some significant words. What in the world is going on? And I want to answer this just because I know y'all are all the studious type of people that will go home and cross-reference and read Psalm 68 and be like, wait a minute, what's going on here, Paul? Well, here's what I think is going on. And I want to emphasize, here's what I think is going on. Because if you read five commentaries, you get five answers. If you read 15 commentaries, you get 15 answers. And so, and the reason for that is because it's really hard to say definitively what's going on here. But here's what I think is happening. I think Paul is not actually quoting Psalm 68 here. I think what Paul is quoting is a hymn that was common in the first century church that was based on Psalm 68, that specifically was a Christological reading of Psalm 68. Here's why I think that. First of all, the way Paul introduces this quote, Dio lege in Greek, therefore it says, that formulation for introducing a quote is only used two times in the New Testament. Both times by Paul, both times in Ephesians, here and in Ephesians 5.14, which is definitely a hymn that the church sang that Paul quoted. Okay, so he never uses this formulation to introduce a quote from the Bible. Typically what Paul does is he either just throws the quote out with no introduction because everybody would know where it came from, or he says, as it is written. Speaking, with, speaking to the reality that, that I'm quoting what has already been written as the Word of God. So he uses a completely different formula to introduce this here. And the only other time we see that formula is when he's using kind of a hymn, like we often do in preaching. Like, remember, like, you know, we'll read a portion of a hymn to make our point. Paul does the same thing. We're just being Pauline when we do that. I think that's what's going on here is he's using a Christological reworking of Psalm 68, much like the hymns we sing are often Christological reworkings of the Psalms, in order to make the point. 
And the point that he's making is that that victorious God in Psalm 68, the one who vanquished the enemies and the one who established the people and the one who who we read and we kind of wince at like some of the, the brutalness with which he deals with his enemies, that glorious, conquering, victorious king is Jesus. He's the one who fulfills all of that promised victory. He's the one who brings about all the promises of the kingdom of God. He's the one who establishes perfect justice and perfect righteousness. He's the one who actually cares for the poor. He's the one who makes everything right. He's the one who vanquishes the enemy. He's the one who has the authority and the power and the will to do all of this. And he's the one who has equipped his saints for the work to which he has called them. In other words, the one who knows what it takes to gain the victory because he has gained it for us. The one who knows what it is that we're facing in the fight because he has fought it for us. The one who knows the needs of his people because he has met them for us. He now gives us what we need to serve one another. This kind of helps us think about why these gifts are so important and and why our use of them in the church isn't an optional thing or just some good, clever idea that some preacher that got tired and needed some help came up with. This is actually the work of Christ. The one who ascended had previously descended in order to claim the victory, and then he ascended back over all heavens in order that all things might be fulfilled in him. This is one who says, I actually know what it takes to claim and establish the victory. I actually know what it takes to establish and grow the kingdom. And here are the gifts that you need. See, this is very different kind of leadership than how we typically think about leadership. The the way we typically think about leadership is we're at point A, we want to get to point B, and we're pretty sure that if we follow these steps, we'll get there successfully. And whoever is best at convincing us to follow the steps that they've laid out, that's the strongest leader, right? But, But at the end of the day, no earthly leader actually knows for sure that what they're saying is going to work. This is why so often we'll see people that, that, you know, they plant a church or they're pastoring a church and it just, it grows like crazy. And you talk to them and you're like, what did you do? And they're like, I don't know. But they'll write a book anyway and sell that book because people like me who want to see their church grow will buy it and then we'll try to do the same thing, even though it really had nothing to do with any of that. It was just a blessing of the Spirit. That's not how Christ leads. Christ leads and gifts his church, not from a place of, I'm pretty sure this will get us there. But from a place of, I've conquered. I've established my kingdom. I know what it takes. And here's what the people of God need in order to be strengthened and grow up into what I've made them to be. That's why when we read about these gifts and and, and when we think about our role in the church, that's why we have to see how necessary it is. Because this isn't just a preacher's idea to grow a church. This is Christ supplying the body of Christ that we might all grow 
together. And that makes us think very, very differently. When you hear someone like me stand up here and say, you need to use your gifts in the church. You need to find your place. Like it's not, it makes us think very differently about that. Because what we're calling for is for you to use what Christ by his spirit has given you for the sake of everyone, for the sake of his body. And so it says that this one who, who claimed victory this one who is the conquering king, he gave these gifts to those that he led. And then Paul lists four different offices here. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds, teachers. Shepherds and teachers. Some people see it as five. Shepherds and teachers go together as one office. There's some technical Greek things that, that, that make, make us come to that conclusion. Specifically, just like in the ESV, you see the definite article before each office the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. In the Greek, the definite article isn't on teachers also. And so most people kind of go, yeah, those probably go together because one is just written a little bit differently. But two, we see throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, that the shepherd's job was to teach the people. That, that's primarily what, what my job is for you, is to teach you this is what is true. This is what the gospel is. This is who Jesus is. This is why you need him. This is who our God is. This is how we live. That's, that's my job, to teach you that which is true, to equip you, it says. And then from there on, you've got this long list of prepositional phrases, so he says, I've given these offices, and, and not all of them continue today, like apostles. There were 12 apostles, and that was it. But shepherds and teachers, we still have. But, but all of these offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, all had the same goal. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up the body of Christ. Now, there's a couple of different ways that, that Reformed guys tend to interpret this. Some see these all as coordinate prepositional phrases. Here's what I mean by that. And I apologize for the technicality of some of this, but, but it's important and it helps us understand what's going on here. Some people say that, that what these, these folks were to do was to equip the saints for the work of ministry and, or I'm sorry, they were given to equip the saints and they were given for the work of ministry and they were given for building up the body. In other words, it's the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers who do all of those things. That's one way to look at it. I think a better way to look at it, because the prepositions change, is, is this. That the, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, what we're to do is equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, those, those last two prepositional phrases are subordinate to the first. I'm to equip you for what end? For the work of ministry. For the building up of the body. It's not just me and the elders who are to do the work of ministry, who are to build up the body of Christ. It's all of us together. Our job as elders, our job as shepherds and teachers is to equip you to do that. And we do that, we're going to see primarily through teaching you sound doctrine, teaching you the gospel of Jesus Christ, teaching you what it is that the Bible says. That's why Christ gave these gifts 
First, these teaching gifts that the body might be equipped in order to use the gifts that all of us have. Remember, he said each one was given a gift. Each one of us. Not just the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. They're not the only ones that were given gifts. Each one of us were given gifts by this conquering king in order that his kingdom, his body, might be grown in strength and in faith and in the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So he's given us this, and this helps us go back. And then he says, he's given us this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. So again, this helps us with our passage that we looked at last week. How can Paul with a straight face say there is one body? Well, because he understands that we're still in a process of growing up into that unity that actually does exist. The the unity of the body of Christ, it's kind of like when a kid goes into his dad's closet and he he gets out his suit or gets out his pants and shoes and he puts them on and he walks out and the sleeves are all floppy and the shoes won't stay on his feet because everything's too big. What needs to happen? He needs to grow up into those clothes so that they'll fit him and he can wear them properly. That's kind of how the unity of the body of Christ is. It is a reality. But right now, in our ongoing sinfulness and in our ongoing kind of affair with the flesh and all of the the things that we do, right now we wear the unity of the body of Christ kind of like a kid wears his parents' clothes. They don't, it doesn't quite fit. And what we need is to grow up into the reality of what we are. And that's why Jesus has given the gifts to the church that we might do that. And so these gifts are to be used for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body until that happens. Now, here's the kicker. We're also supposed to be telling new people about Jesus and bringing them into the fold. So what does that mean? Well, it means that that we're always going to be growing up until we get to glory. Until we get to heaven, we're always going to be growing up into this unity. So we keep doing what it is that God has called us to do. If we think that somehow we have arrived, if we think that somehow we've reached this unity, then really what we've done is we've shut ourselves off to the reality of the outside world and we've quarantined ourselves with just the people that think like us and grow like us and are at the same place as us so that we can fool ourselves into thinking like we're all mature together. We shouldn't do that. We need to recognize that we're all continuing to grow and we need to use the gifts that God has given us until we attain that unity of the faith and the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we see that knowledge is a big part of it. It's One of my favorite podcasts that I've listened to a lot is The White Horse Inn and their tagline is, know what you believe and why you believe it. So the point is, there is a particular content to the faith, to Christianity. There is actually one faith. 
of faith, Jude says, once for all passed down to the saints. There's a particular content that is summed up in our confession and in the ancient creeds of the church that we are to believe and grow up into. And so that involves two things. It involves knowing what that faith is. Knowing the the, the doctrines of the Bible. Knowing who God is. That that he is one God who exists in three persons. Knowing that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to die for sinners. That we might have life in him. Knowing that, that we're all depraved and that our only hope is by grace through faith. Knowing the content of our faith. This is why we have affirmations of faith week after week. It's one to stand and all affirm, hey, this is what we believe. But there's also a pedagogical function to it that we might learn. No, this is what defines us. This is what we're about. This is why teaching has been so important in the life of not just this church, but every faithful church. It's why we bother with with what what at times is is the laborious work of preaching through books of the Bible and doing doctrinal studies in Sunday school and, and, and small groups and things like that because having right knowledge matters. Knowing what it is that we believe about the gospel and believing it together matters. R.C. Sproul tells a story of a group of people who would come together and to study theology and they were so excited about the unity that they had with one another. And they were kind of bragging about it and they were, you know, there's, you know, Pentecostals and Presbyterians and Methodists and Baptists and all of this stuff. And R.C. Sproul wasn't, I don't think, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, he wasn't trying to cause a problem. But as they bragged about their unity, he was like, oh, okay, well, well, what's the basis of your unity? Because he knew just from the traditions that they had named that they all actually believed very different stuff. And they believed very different stuff about some very basic concepts in the gospel. And so he kind of gently pushed on their Christology and what each of them believed about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And he was like, I I wasn't meaning to do this, but by the end of it, they all hated each other. There was no unity at all anymore. Why? Because the unity that they imagined they had was built on something false. It wasn't built on them all affirming the same thing about who God is and who Christ is and what Jesus has done for his people. See, the content of our faith matters. It matters, and and it's what the unity is built on. That's why we go back to the gospel, to the basics of what is true again and again and again here at Christ Church. It's why I and the elders remind us again and again, this is what we believe. This is what is true. This is who Jesus is. This is what he has done for us. This is the way of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. This is why we need it, because we're all sinners. And we're going to keep doing that until we all, and by we all, we don't just mean the few people sitting here 
until we all, that is all Christians, and, and not just those who are presently are Christians, but all those whom God has foreordained before the foundations of the earth to be Christians, until we all have attained to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God and to the unity of the faith. So the first thing is, is knowing. No, this is actually what is. The second thing is believing it. Staking your life on it. And in many ways, that's the more difficult part. It makes me very grateful that, that the Bible is clear that even faith is a gift of the Spirit. That this is not our own doing. That this is the work of God. That this faith itself to believe what actually is true. Even that is a gift. See, all kinds of people study religion and study Christianity and study the Bible merely out of curiosity as to what's in there. It's amazing when you start looking at, at Bible departments at, at big universities. I mean, almost all of them still have some kind of religion department that teaches some kind of class about the Bible or, or about you know, Christianity or whatever. But very few of them teach it from a place of conviction that, no, this is what is true. They're really, they've become more just classes in sociology. Like, hey, there's these one people over here that believe this kind of thing. And they set it right beside whatever else over here. And so you can study this stuff and you can learn like, oh, here's what Christian doctrine is without actually believing it. That's why there's two parts to this. Knowing what it is that we believe and actually believing it. Actually staking our life on the truth of the gospel actually staking our life on what is. That's really, at the end of the day, what faith is. It's staking our life on what actually is the case. Until we all attain to the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. Maturity is the goal. Just like the kid wearing his, his dad's suit and shoes, what he needs is, is physically to mature so that that fits him. So that he can wear those clothes. So that he can move around in them and, and function in them. That's what we need as the body of Christ. We need to mature. We need to grow up into maturity to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the fullness of Christ? The fullness of Christ here is Paul, if we put it all back in context, is when the body of Christ actually reflects the unity that is true about it. When the body of Christ actually reflects the oneness that is true about it. The oneness of our faith, the oneness of our body, the oneness of our hope. That's the fullness of Christ. When who he is and what he has done actually comes to define all of who we are and what we are. Because see, the reality is where it doesn't, where we see division, that's where we haven't grown up into the fullness yet. And that's why we need to continue this work 
of equipping one another so that we may no longer be children. That's the goal. This isn't a slam on kids. Kids are well aware that they're not adults and need to grow up and they're going to learn all kinds of things, learn new knowledge and new skills and and have new abilities and, and gain more freedoms. Kids are well aware of that. It's why they say things and why we've all said things when we were kids to our parents when we're fresh to them. Well, when I grow up, I'm not going to blah, blah, blah. Or when I'm a parent, my kids will get to eat all the candy that they want or whatever it may be. They need to grow up. And inevitably, we do and we become parents and we're like, oh, yeah, that was a ridiculous thing to say. <laughs> that was absolutely horrendous. Why would I have said something like that? Well, because we were a kid. We were a kid. And so we are in the faith. And we need to grow up so that we won't be children any longer, so that we won't be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. I mean, what kid wasn't told at some point because they wanted to do something ridiculous because their friends were doing something ridiculous. Well, if all your friends jumped off the Empire State Building, would you want to do that too? I, I, I remember one time, she might not remember this, I gave my mom a Mother's Day card that said, if enough people jump off the Empire State Building, it doesn't hurt anymore. She didn't appreciate it. But that's the reality of immaturity. You see the crowd going this way, and you're like, oh, we got to go that way. And then they go back this way, and you're like, oh, we got to go back this way. And then they go back over here. Oh, and, and it's just like, it's like these waves throwing us back and forth. And Paul's saying, that's not how we should be. And it's such a good analogy of, of childhood to adulthood. It's not that adults aren't affected by the people around us. It's not that we're not kids affected by peer pressure and all of that. But it is that we've lived enough and made enough dumb decisions that we know, yeah, we're just going to let this pass. Because this is all going to come to naught at the end of the day. And so this isn't something we need to worry about. It's the same way with the faith. When we're grounded in the truth of what is, when we're grounded in true doctrine and who Jesus actually is in what it is that he has done for us and who it is that we are in him and in what it is that God calls us to, when we're grounded in true biblical faith, then when the latest book comes out and everybody freaks out, it's like, oh, we all got to do this. And then the next one comes out, and it's like, oh, no, now we all got to do this. And it's just this back and forth. We're able to go, no, no, no. What does the Bible say? And we're no longer led by the craftiness of Christian marketing that can convince us of all kinds of things. But we're led by the truth of the gospel. We're no longer led simply by just what resonates with me, but we're led by the truth of the gospel. And isn't that so often a very different thing? So often for us, what resonates with me really has nothing to do with the truth of the gospel. It has nothing to do with the teaching of scripture. It has everything to do with what makes me feel good about me. What makes me secure in the identity that I want to have for me? Paul's saying, 
That's exactly how we should not be. But rather, we should be grounded in what is actually the case. And so how do we do that? Rather than being tossed to and fro that, so that we won't be children any longer, so that we won't be these kids running around in the floppy clothes of our parents, we're to grow up, how? Speaking the truth in love. That's how this happens. That's, that's my job to you, is to tell you in love what is actually the case. That doesn't mean it's always easy to hear. Sometimes it's very difficult to hear when we're told what is actually the case, what is actually true about us in the gospel, what the gospel actually calls us to, what what the Bible actually expects. Sometimes it's very hard to hear because sometimes what we're told is you need to put off your flesh. You need to put your flesh to death. That's where Paul's going next week. You need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus. And sometimes what we need to be told is, you're not doing that. Not even kind of. And you need to repent. And that can be said in love. Just because someone is telling us we're wrong doesn't mean they're not being loving to us. It doesn't mean they don't love us. It doesn't mean they're not concerned about it. it. Actually, it might mean that they love you more than anyone else in your life at that particular moment because they're willing to say, this is not okay. Now, to be sure, we can speak the truth not in love. It doesn't make it any less the truth, but it does make it a little bit harder to hear. But, but we can speak the truth not in love. People talk about cage-stage Calvinism, the, those few years after someone has just come to an understanding of the doctrines of grace, that, that God really is sovereign and it really is all about justification by grace alone through faith alone, and they just walk around with this Calvin-shaped bludgeon and just beat people with the grace of the gospel. And you're like, I think you're completely missing the point. You're saying right things, but you're doing it in a completely unloving way. Most of us have been there. We're to speak truth and we're to do it in love that we may grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. That's how we grow up. That's how we're strengthened. It's through the speaking of what is true about Jesus and about us in him and about who God is and about how he is to one another. Again, as Paul says in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And as we're strengthened by the proclamation of that word and we're equipped more and more and enabled more and more by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body and to live more and more into righteousness, all of a sudden we're able to take these gifts that God has given us as glamorous or inglamorous as they may be and use them for the good and the building up of the body around us. Because one of the things that we realize as we grow up is that the search for glory, the search for self-glory is vain and empty. 
And as you grow up in the faith, as you grow up in the faith, you, you learn that. And you're willing to, to serve other people and love other people and, and care about other people. Because you realize that you have everything you need in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to live a life of trying to gain something for yourself any longer. It was so sweet. Yesterday, I was, we were up, there was a bunch of us up here yesterday afternoon cleaning. And, and one of the um, uh, more mature uh, fellows in the church, they, there was a few of them in here and they were mopping. And, and one of the kids, uh, I heard him say, you know, why are they in there? I mean, it's just like they're mopping the whole sanctuary. And I was like, well, people got to sign up for what they want to do. I mean, you know, like, they, that's what they wanted to do. That's how they wanted to serve. This is how they thought they could, they saw something that needed to be done, they wanted to do it. And this kid was like, man, I hope I'm like him when I grow up. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I do too. I hope I'm like him when I grow up. Because they were willing to do this thankless Hiring job just for the sake of everybody else. Somebody was like, you know what? Our chairs need to be cleaned. And they sat up here for I don't know how long and cleaned every one of these chairs individually. Why? So that you would have a clean place to sit today. So that you could walk in here and, and, and walk into to a clean facility, walk into a place where it feels like, you know what? Somebody here cares about how it feels when I walk into church. That's what this is about. But when we're stuck on trying to gain glory for ourselves, we won't do those jobs. We won't serve in that way. When we're stuck on, on trying to nurture our flesh, we won't do those things. Because our flesh wants nothing to do with a toilet brush or a mop handle or a bottle of cleaning spray. It wants nothing at all to do with anything that is an act of service to others. Growing up into the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. See, this is why I don't think those prepositional phrases that we looked at back at the beginning of this sermon so long ago, this is why I don't think those are coordinate. This isn't just what, what I and, and the elders are to do. This is what each part, when it is working properly, makes the body build itself up in love. See, see, this isn't that everybody should be a teacher. This isn't every member ministry in that sense, that, that what we need is everybody to grow up and to be a leader and to be a discipler and be a multiplier or whatever, you know, fun, catchy terms we come. No, this is, we need everybody to be so grounded in the truth of the gospel, so grounded in their hope and security and identity that's found in Jesus Christ, that they're willing to take up their cross and die to follow him for the sake of the people around them. That's what it's about. That's what the church is to be. That's how we're to be. A group of people so grounded in Christ, so grounded in, in, in what is true about him and us in him, 
that we're no longer clamoring for our own glory, but for His that comes to the glory of His people. And so we're willing to die for the sake of that. We're willing to see our flesh crucified with Christ for the sake of that. That's what we're called to. Christ church, that's what we're called to. This is why we used our vision statement earlier. And I'm not typically a fan of, of vision statements, but, but the reason I love the one that our session came up with so many years ago is because it just, it's just the Bible. It's just a biblical statement that's in this stack of paper somewhere. It's just a biblical statement about what we're to be. A community of people whose hope is set wholly in Jesus Christ and are each equipped to work for building up the body of Christ in love until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. That's our vision at Christ Church. Not reach, grow, go, or whatever catchy things that we might come up with on our own but that we might be so wholly resting in Jesus Christ that we're willing to die to ourselves for His glory through the goodness of His people. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for the hope that it gives us, for the truth, the, 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 the glory, that the gifts we've been given, we've been given by the One who has conquered all that stands against us. Might we, walking in your spirit, use these gifts for your glory and the good of your people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Conway podcast. We hope this teaching has helped you grow in the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Please feel free to share this resource so that others may also be strengthened in their faith through the study of scripture and theology.